Welcome to Word on the Street, a weekly podcast from Barclays UK, where our experts help ordinary investors make sense of the latest news and events impacting the world's financial markets. This week, we talk about the oil market, both past, present and distant future, delving into demand and whether it's peaking amidst the proliferation of electric vehicles and wider efficiencies, with Toby Cross, Head of Client Investment Solutions, and Will Hobbs, Chief Investment Officer. Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of Word on the Street, this time for the 6th of December 2019. Well, we're already in the run-up here for Christmas. You walk around Canary Wharf, there are Christmas trees everywhere. Everybody's in that spirit. And Will, are OPEC in the Christmas spirit? That seems to be, uh, that seems to be what's filling the news this week. I saw that the, the oil cartel met to discuss whether they were going to cut production. So we're not going to be getting oil for Christmas? Well, uh, Toby, we've actually been waiting for the announcement. The problem is that um, there's so much razzmatazz associated with the actual announcement from these results um, that we still haven't got um, got the final uh, thing. So we, we just couldn't wait any longer to, to, to cut the podcast, basically. Um, but it looks like they will cut. Well, anyway, this week we'll, t- we'll talk about that story a little bit later. But I'm really interested in the role of uh, oil in the economy. Um, I've just come back from the CityWise Global New Ideas Conference, and of course, the the electrification, the fourth industrial uh, industrial revolution that you keep talking about. This seems to be what all of the asset managers are are talking about on on the street. And I'm reminded of that famous quote from the ex-Saudi oil minister, Sheikh Yamani. And he said something along the lines of, well, the Stone Age didn't end for want of stone or words to that effect. So I wanted to grill you on that and also the latest on the UK and the world economy ahead of the UK elections next week. So let's get into it. Um, Let's get back to the state of the oil market. OPEC planning to cut production. What is the story there, Toby? So just 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 to sort of you know level set us all, and I'm sure I'm teaching grannies to uh, suck eggs here. But OPEC, um, this is the organisation of um, petroleum exporting countries. Um, it's inter- it's an intergovernmental organisation of 14 countries, founded in 1960 in Baghdad. It was five initial founding members, Iran, Iraq, Kuwait, Saudi Arabia, and Venezuela. Uh, and I think the point about this group is they account for a little less than half of the world's oil production uh, and over three quarters of the world's uh, oil, proven oil reserves. So if they can agree on quotas uh, and all the members abide by these quotas, they have like genuine clout in the oil market. Now, at the moment, um, you're in a rough state of what we call equilibrium. So demand and supply um, seem more or less matched. However, non-OPEC supply uh, is expected to grow pretty firmly next year. Now, that's particularly US, uh, Norway and Brazil as it goes. Um, so OPEC have a kind of um, a decision to make, uh, uh, really, uh, uh, between allowing prices uh, to fall as this supply comes online uh, or maybe losing a bit of market share um, but supporting prices. It, it, that's a horrible oversimplification, but I'm giving you, uh, you know, it's the best I can do. Okay, so we we know that oil demand has been unusually weak throughout 2019. So what interests me is to, is that because there has been less demand from, for example, the manufacturing industry or international travel, aviation, things like that? Or is there something else at play? And I'm thinking predominantly about things like electric vehicles, which everywhere I look, there seem to be more and more manufacturers producing lines of electric vehicles. Which is it? Yeah, sort of the structural decline in demand. It's a, it's a, this is fascinating. And it, it goes right to the heart of it, Toby. And I think for the moment, I would probably argue that this is still more an economy story than anything else. So um, as in sort of, you know, more a cyclical phenomenon. Uh, So a lot of the, and and you alluded to this, a lot of the um, oil intensive industries and countries have swooned a bit, activity swooned a bit this year. 
Um, and the fact is that oil demand is still at all time highs. Uh, so consumption has grown about 30% in the last 20 years alone. Um, so we are now at um, about 100 million barrels per day in terms of consumption. So if you think about that, uh, every barrel is about 160 uh, litres. So that's an awful lot of oil. But so it's, it's interesting. Sorry to interrupt you. No, no, no. It's interesting because we've talked uh, on this podcast and other presentations again and again and again about understanding these statistics in in the context of their long term trends. So it fascinates me that you're referring to what oil usage is now compared to 20 years ago, and actually the newspapers etc. Are, are writing stories about oil demand this year versus last year or the year before. So the way that you and the team look at it is to look at it over a longer period of time. You always talk about this you know the context that you need to look about look at data in. and I think um, it is um, it is an important point and I think to your original question so far what we've really only seen um, is dips in oil demand coming from recessions in the economy um, whether that's the way forward you know we'll see okay so electric vehicles um, I don't want to bang on about it but I've had an electric car or a fully electric car now for a number of years not a Tesla but you know something modest um, and, and I love it the number of people that I've either taken for a journey or they've seen it and, and expressed an interest, loads of people have bought them having had just a, a little bit of a, a flavour. So I'm interested, what are, the, what are the reasonable assumptions that we can make about the uptake of electric vehicles over that longer term? And I'm talking about like the next 20 to 30 years. What do you and the team make of that? Yeah, this is, I mean, this goes right to the heart of it. It's a really interesting question. So I, I was speaking to um, one auto analyst, um, uh, car analyst, sorry, car industry analyst uh, in normal speak um, from another bank the other day who was suggesting that um, all city travel will eventually or reasonably quickly be in autonomous nodes. So that's no frills, uh, no brand recognition, therefore no margin for the manufacturers. Um, within, and he's saying within the next 10 years. Now that sounds extreme, mega aggressive to me. But if you look at the OPEC forecast, and this may be a bit self-serving, I guess, um, is uh, they reckon that by 2040, 22% of all cars will be powered by alternative fuels. Others have slightly higher numbers. But just for context, though, and, I, and, I, and back to the kind of your your, um, uh, your Yamani quote, your, uh, uh, your Ahmed um, Yaki Yamani quote, he was, uh, he was, um, there was a really interesting IMF paper looking at US energy, um, uh, uh, the US energy mix over time. Um, and this point was really that, you know, a demand driven um, abandonment um, of oil would not be unprecedented. Um, so the US and energy fuel mix basically went through two dramatic changes, um, which were unrelated to supply scarcity uh, in the century from 1850. And basically, as coal toppled wood, first you had coal toppling wood, um, um, and then oil and gas did the same for coal in reasonably rapid succession. Now, the rise in of oil in the early 20th century came largely as a result of a transportation revolution, as kind of horses were swapped for cars. Now, many argue again that it'll again be the transportation revolution that you allude to in the form of the move it to electric cars that's going to speed the transition. Now, so just to give you some more stats, so f between 1905 and 1915, the ownership of horses per 1,000 people in the US fell by around 30%. Now, in the following 15 years, horse ownership fell by a further 90, 90%. Now, if starting in 2017, car displacement follows the same pattern, 90% of the US car market would be electric vehicles in a little over 20 years. Now, this is obviously way in excess of, you know, current uh, expectations, which tend to be based on, you know, extrapolations of current trends and EV adoption and battery cost reduction. But the point I think, which is really interesting, and this is something we've talked about here on this, uh, on this podcast, 
is that much of the scepticism about EV, the electric vehicle's potential, is kind of eerily reminiscent of the early days of the cell phone market. So in the early 1980s, and we've talked about this report before, but McKinsey um, produced, and this is not to slate McKinsey in any way, shape or form, they produced a report for AT&T, and, I remember, I remember this. Yeah, thing. and about the cell phone market's potential. And the report identified, and this is not through no sloppiness on their part, they identified major hurdles to cell phone adoption, citing the bulkiness of handsets, short duration of the battery charge, high cost per minute, and lack of coverage. The report concluded or predicted a market of 900,000 cell phones by 2000. Now, the actual number turned out to be 120 times larger than forecast at 109 million phones. Now, the point about this is... Well, it's like the computer stat, isn't it? The, 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 a famous CEO making the point in the computer industry, making the point, no human being would need more than 64k of memory. Absolutely. <laughs> we just lack the imagination, don't we? And I think that's the point. When I think that my six-year-old's Furby has more than 64k of <laughs> operating system in it. Right. Now, but it's not just private cars, is it? They're not the only users of oil. There's aviation, trucking, petrochemicals... Yeah, and it's that true, 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 totally true. Uh, and truck demand is um, is I think a quarter of the current um, uh, uh, and, and a quarter of the current market on the Asian aviation front. There was one airline executive that I heard a story about was suggesting that around eighty percent of the world's population has not yet been on an aeroplane, um, which paints a potentially terrifying picture for for the demand outlook. Single-use plastics, they account for about 5% of daily demand. So the point is that if we want to um, change our demand for fossil fuels, um, massive changes in consumer, corporate, government behaviour are needed alongside massive innovation. Um, Now, a side point I would make here is that we may find a bigger impact on aggregate demand uh, for oil in the next decade, just on that EV point, the electric vehicle point, from actually fuel efficiency. Um, so the non-EV market getting more and more miles per gallon. Um, so that might be quite one interesting trend to just to keep an eye on. Just, just as an aside, do we run the risk of replacing one natural shortage with another because I know that we're trying to move away from uh, the quote the addiction to oil but in terms of 90% let's let's go back to your quote about you know in 20 years you may have 90% adoption of electric vehicles does the planet have enough lithium to support the batteries required for that or are we going to have to look for innovation and ingenuity beyond the sort of EV technology that we have now. Well, so you're right. These kind of constraints we're running up against right now. But I would put that back into that cell phone story in a sense. We just don't know which constraints are going to fall away. And I, I wouldn't say like... Well, 90- you've been very good over over the years of educating me that every time we try and forecast one of these problems, humanity has a pretty good track record of surprising us with innovation and ingenuity and coming up with something to, to solve the problems as they arise. So you're your point about lack of imagination is probably extremely right. and, and it's no and it's no criticism do you know what I mean we're all, we all find it difficult don't we I mean we just lack the imagination to see it clearly see which of those binding currently binding constraints are going to fall away and make things easier they may not who knows just another aside Toby and sorry to bore on about this but I did read a great story the other day and it comes it, it comes from a book that I haven't yet finished but it's by um, a guy called Andrew McAfee it was recommended by a colleague here uh, and it's called more from less 
you know, <laughs> that's what it says on the tin, I guess. But he was pointing out, and you'll love this, that back in the 1960s, US freight companies, in the absence of kind of sensors and other subsequent innovations, only knew where 5% of their freight cars actually were. Now, they only moved one in 20 per day, one of these rail cars per day, not because the others needed rest or maintenance, because they literally didn't know where they were. Now, the point is now that you could be much more effective. So in the developed world, um, you know, we, uh, that's the really interesting thing about development at the moment. So the first stage of industrial revolution that we talked about, you can almost plot like a one for one um, relationship between our lives getting better and the environment getting worse. Now, the latter stages of development, what you're seeing more recently is actually improvements in human living standards, particularly in the developed world, are not coming at that same subsequent cost to the environment. Actually, our footprint seems to be lightening in the developed world. Now, the big problem environmentally for the world, in a sense, is how to get many of the emerging markets who are going through that industrial transformation, which is much heavier on the economy, or on the environment, sorry, how to get them through to that next stage without doing the same amount of damage that the developed world did, but also allowing them to climb the same ladder that we climbed. Sorry. Side, side point, but I think just an important one. No, it's, it's very valuable. I, I just want to reflect on the fact that that's from a book that you currently are reading, haven't finished yet. And earlier on in this podcast, you made reference to an interesting IMF report that, you, uh, that you'd been reading. I've just finished reading Lee Child's latest book, <laughs> which I would commend to you as possibly Lee. something that you need to we read before... We all need a bit of reacher. We all need a bit of reacher, yeah. <laughs> anyway, thank goodness that you're reading these books. Now, final question on the subject of oil, and it's to do with the sort of the way it's structurally how do you access it, what's going on in the market, what happens to these companies. I think it was our colleagues in uh, Barclays Investment Bank uh, suggested that one in five citizens in the UK, own, or less than one in five citizens in the UK, would be happy to own oil company shares. So what does that mean for the Shells and BPs of this world? Are they going to become penny stocks before long? Yeah, it's fascinating, isn't it? And I, I, the, So, I mean, the point I would make here is that, um, you know, that McKinsey report we alluded to earlier really serves to remind us of how limited the view of the road ahead has has always been, even to the most assiduous forecasters. Now, in a sense, if you think about it, that makes picking out the long-term winners from the evolution and adoption of new technologies a very hazardous game, particularly if played beyond the confines of that diversified portfolio that we're always uh, we're preaching. Now, even betting hard on the surely obvious losers as you mentioned, such as those engaged in oil exploration and production, for example, that can prove t- tricky too. So for those who would doubt the adaptability of these profit-seeking institutions, the history of, t- of some of the today's most successful companies is instructive. So WPP, for instance, the FTSE company, uh, now a British advertising giant, started life in 1971 as Wire and Plastic Products, PLC, manufacturing wire shopping baskets. Uh, oil giant Shell used to import and sell actual shells. Uh, Nintendo made playing cards while Berkshire Hathaway specialised in textiles. Do you know what Nokia started as? What was that? They're oh, boots. A, plastic boots. No, they were a logging company. Oh, weren't they? I thought they made Wellington boots as well. I'm totally Tokyo imagining that, yeah. So, yeah, it shows. And, and, and so, you know, that's that's the point that we always kind of, you know, trying to, trying to sort of um, uh, uh, remember. And, and also this speaks to that story we're always banging on about. It, it's that the continuing prospects for such technological leaps are a large part of why we always urge clients to keep skin in the game. Um, you know, certain geographies and sectors will inevitably, unfortunately, endure disruption, but the world in aggregate tends to benefit um, and something that uh, is eventually reflected in aggregate corporate earnings and therefore share prices. Right so that 
brings us on to our final subject, data. I know that we've had a lot of information released on the world economy in the last week or so. So as you and the team lay your fingers on the carotid artery of the world economy, can you feel its pulse strengthening? Very nice. Yeah, no. Uh, it's... I work hard at this podcast. <laughs> it's not do. just you with your fancy books. <laughs> it does. <laughs> Yeah, very good. Uh, yeah, so, so uh, the world economy, I would say parts of it are still a bit groggy, to continue the analogy, but it does seem to be finding its feet. So the data this week has sort of sort of painted just a slightly improving picture. Those lead indicators uh, are indicating that things are stabilising. And our outlook for next year, as we talked about last week, it, it, it's, it's brightening a little bit. You know, we're not expecting stellar growth from either the economy or the corporate, um, uh, the corporate sector, but it's probably enough uh, to keep the world economy from stalling and that's enough to sort of, you know, keep us expecting that stocks should outperform bonds uh, over that time frame. Uh, so that's, those are the sort of major things. We'll, we'll keep you updated, obviously. Well, Will, all that remains is for me to thank you and the team. I imagine our listeners over the next seven days will be out boosting consumer spending and propping up retail earnings in the high street as we get even deeper into the Christmas period. I look forward to catching up with you again next week. Well, Will. I think that's the one we've got Sophie back, haven't we? And we're doing one for the election, uh, post-election. I'm sorry, one. I'm sorry. Is there an election taking oh, place? Oh, there must be, there must be. I'd rather talk about Christmas sales. Anyway, <laughs> you'll find out next week what we're going to talk about. Will, thanks for joining us and thank you for your attention. And we hope to catch up with you next week for another Word on the Street. All investments can fall as well as rise in value, and their past performance is not a reliable indicator of future performance. This podcast is not a personal investment recommendation.